This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Christine Jackman, welcome to Better Reading. It's great to be here, Cheryl. Now, let me introduce you. Christine began her career as a journalist with the Courier Mail in Brisbane in 1993. She has worked in New York as a foreign correspondent for News Corp, in the Canberra Press Gallery, and as the social issues writer for The Australian. A self-confessed political junkie, as I am, she has covered numerous election campaigns, including a US presidential race, and is also the author of Inside Kevin 07, detailing Labor's victory in 2007. She is a regular guest on ABC radio and she's here today to talk to us about her book which is completely non-political if you like called turning down the noise welcome christine i feel that there's so much to talk about so you know you know that these are the stories behind the story so i want to go back and i want to start at the beginning of your career and for what i can see is a hugely busy life and then how you came to write this book and to decide to turn the noise down. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? I grew up in Brisbane and went to school at uh, basically Catholic uh, girls' school in Brisbane, St Rita's College at uh, Clayfield. And I never actually, I was, I, I came late to the idea of being a journalist or a writer for a living. Uh, it was which is ridiculous looking back. I mean, I was reading, uh, going to libraries with my father when I was, uh, the books were bigger than I was, you know, a lot of the time. And reading newspapers, I, remem- I still remember the first headline I read was about the Grafton um, train, Grafton train crash? Yeah, Sorry. yeah. A World Series cricket I remember reading to my dad. But I didn't, it, I didn't really settle on journalism. I actually started a law degree. It, it was a profession and a vocation really that, that found me, that insisted that I was going to be writing mm. the rest of my life. Is it because you think you're a good observer or is it because you just felt that you had lots of opinions? I'm just wondering what the trick is to journalism. That is a great question and um, it, it's come up in other discussions because journalism has changed so much, Cheryl. Because a few people have asked me, why would a journalist write about turning down the noise? Isn't that sort Well, of it seems counterintuitive. Yes, <laughs> contradictory idea. But I actually think that I came to journalism because I loved listening. I loved yeah. people's stories. I loved finding out what other people had to say, what other places were like. I was so curious and about other people. And, and events. So I, I've actually said to some people, I think there are journalists who are actually good listeners and it's actually should be a prerequisite for what we do. The rush to opinion and yelling has only happened in the last 
10 to 20 years, um, you know, the, the latter half of my career, certainly, and it's been amplified and, and, and accelerated by social media. It's also cheap, opinion's cheap, mm. um, and I have certainly, you know, written columns, lots of columns over the years. But what I really love doing is sitting and having people tell me what drives them, what motivates them about their stories. So I think journalism is really you find people like me. I write about it in the book. I was, you know, I was a quiet reader who actually found my happy space in journalism because it allowed me to engage with the world mm-hmm. but in a, in a safe way. I could listen, ask the questions that I found fascinating, then go back and, and write, which is what mm-hmm. I really loved doing. I think the balance has tipped. I think we are now seeing more and more journalists who see it or who are pressured to do it in a way that's really just about churning out more noise. Yeah, and clickbait. I just want to touch on this because you're talking about opinion. I'm yearning for going back to the time when we had letters to the editor. Now we're reading comments um, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and it seems that any there's not a lot of thought given to those comments anymore. And that is, I think, uh, you know, uh, Getting opinion is really important and getting opinion about how people feel is, is very important, but it's certainly it's tilted the other way. It's too much. And it's funny, is it? There's an element of, there's an element or an analogy with, with fast food, right, is that when something becomes quick and convenient, the nutritional value of it falls. And similarly, you know, we all need food and it's great to have something that's convenient sometimes. And similarly, I think the... The digital world allows us so many great things like what you're doing here for really genuine engagement. And I think good media outlets recognise that. But the flip side of it is that when it becomes quick and easy and convenient, as you've just said, what, what we say as journalists but also what readers say or, you know, listeners or viewers when they're commenting, it becomes disposable Mm. You know, it's, mm. it, and, and you see that, I mean, you see that we actually, there's great research that I came across while I was doing the book about how the most successful things in, on Twitter, you know, things that are shared most and, you know, and shared more widely are things that go to negative emotions, you know, outrage, fear, so forth. And I also offer this element of the new, which actually favours believe it or not, fake news. It favours, you know, crazy stuff because our brains are switched on by what's new and unusual and anger and fear motivate, motivate us more. Mm. So what you're seeing is you know, media is being driven by those forces now. Yeah. So tell me, in a career of journalism, and, and not many journalists or even media institutions have been able to transition well from, you know, let's say print to social media. Tell me about that time and tell me how it affected your career at the time. Because it didn't come on that slowly, did it? I mean, really, it came on fairly quickly. It's funny, actually. The warning signs were there. It was almost like when when there's, a, I guess, an avalanche or or a hill gives way, you know, the you see, in fact, people make um, comparisons with, tip, uh, with climate change. There'll be a tipping point and then things happen very quickly. You know, you have that gradual deterioration. And certainly I started my career in the early 90s. 
by the mid to, I saw the beginnings of something different happening as early as the early 2000s when I was in New York, because where I worked was the home of Fox News as well. I wasn't, you know, I was writing for a News Corp paper or network. By the time I came back and I was into Canberra and I started to see the real, you know, 2007 iPhones started, you could see a real shift in that need for quick turnarounds, don't be right, be first, which really rankled with me. The ethics of what we did started to change. I left, I, I took, I was lucky enough to take a voluntary redundancy. I'd spent almost 20 years exactly at News Corp. So I was in some ways very lucky because I had a, re, a good redundancy to leave with in 2012. And that was what, looking back, it felt like a big deal because a lot of people were being made redundant and there were some voluntary redundancies, but it was actually only the beginning. I, I, I guess I can say I got out before it got really awful and literally thousands of journalists were, have lost their jobs since then. Hundreds of outlets have closed. And I was also fortunate enough, Cheryl, that I, I thought, well, what am I going to do next? But I was almost immediately inundated with offers to, for, to be freelance, to do freelance work and be a contributor for other outlets. The interesting thing is even since then, what I could foresee happening is that as more, more journalists entered the market as freelancers and as budgets got driven down even further in the big institutions, the, the pay rates for writers would be, would be squashed. And I've seen that. Mm. You know, I can be open with this, I think, with your group. I knew of journalists, very few, but there were journos who were earning you know, up to $4 a word back then, a handful. And it wasn't unusual to be paid $1.50 to $2 a word for a feature for, with some magazines and outlets. Back then, I think the the union rate was, yeah, it was lot, significantly lower than that. But these days it would be very difficult for most people to get, you know, 80 cents a word is a good rate. And what that means, Cheryl, is it's actually become, I think, unsustainable for people to do good freelance, long-form journalism, the sort of stuff that I did, decent essays. Well, I mean, you know, research. I mean, you, yeah. you're not just not going to have the time at 80 cents a word. You know what I want to talk about here? And so you worked for what is traditionally a conservative media outlet for 20 years. And I don't know whether Fox and Friends was kind of, I mean, when did that come into play? Is that? Fox was established in the mid to late 90s, but it really took off. I saw it take off around the time of, uh, it was really starting to flare up with that 24-7 opinion, which back then was so unusual. 24-7 news was unusual. And what you started seeing is they had to fill the airtime of because news doesn't break that often, no. was with opinion. So it really took off post, post 9-11. The, the loudest voice, that uh, ser- yes. drama series with R- Russell Crowe playing, um, uh, I can't remember his name now, um, it will come to me, mm. the head of Fox yes. uh, who worked for Murdoch. That is an excellent 
like almost documentary on how it took off and the thinking behind it. So um, so what I'm trying to get to here is the divisiveness of media, mm. right? And you're talking about noise and living noise mm. for such a long time. But it got noisier, didn't yes, it? Yes, it got absolutely noisier with social media. But it got noisier when we had these outlets that were hitting us with 24-7 news or 24-7 opinion. And it's become noisier and more divisive. It's clear as day that that is completely a conservative vehicle. I mean, I don't even think it's genuine news. And then you have something completely the other way, like, say, the New York Times, which I favour and I read, that's gone completely the other way, you know, mm. headlining the fact that, you know, that... I mean, opinions on the front page, yes. which really wasn't in the past, was it? So we've got this situation right now that we're in and it's creating more noise than ever. I want to know how you kind of deal with that other than writing a book. As a journalist, how do you deal with that and what's your perception of it? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an, an every day is it Roger Isles? Roger Isles, thank you. Oh, sorry, Giles, it just came to yes, me. Yes, yes. <laughs> sorry, back to you. Uh, <laughs> and, and Russell Crowe truly is brilliant in that role. How do I deal with it? It's an everyday process. I speak, I've spoken to my partner about this. Is that You do go through a grieving process and what you realise is you are grieving not just your own career but the industry this is the end of an industry I feel there are sort of things that are very hopeful that are coming out of it for what it's worth things like what you do you know I think mm. is you know and community engagement about around certain topics and and finding an audience that's they are the, the hopeful mm. green shoots but it is it's uh, it, because I love writing it's it's uh, it's been a struggle pretty much for the last eight years since I took a voluntary redundancy to just come to grips with the fact that that is what I love. I've been, I'm, and I was also very lucky to be paid to do it full time for so long. But two things, one, the industry is just falling away. So it, those jobs are very rare, but also those jobs aren't actually what the industry sustains anymore anyway, to go to what you're talking about, which is that the media, the mainstream media has, I think, evolved in terms of its business model in many, many cases. News Corp is one of them, but also a lot of, as you said, the less left-wing media. What it has done is as audiences fragmented, the internet did that first off and then social media made it even worse. People can get news and information, all sorts of places. So the audiences fragmented. They didn't have to take pick up their newspaper on the front lawn to get their source of news. They didn't have to turn on the 7.45 a.m. news bulletin that's now under threat with the ABC. They could get it right through their day, their day on their phones or wherever from multiple sources. So what that has, I believe, has happened, and it's not explicitly spoken about, is that media organisations have changed their business model to being about delivering objective sort of this is what happened or an attempt to be objective, this is what happened yesterday in the world with some opinion on the opinion pages and propped up by lots of classified advertising and display ads to a business model that is largely about let's call it infotainment. What I mean by that is there is no brief anymore to be an objective reporting of anything. It makes good business sense now to say, well, we are actually, our audience is 
conservatives or our audience are disenfranchised, angry, you know, people who live where, wherever, or smart intellectual liberals or whatever. And it's a classic marketing thing. They have reframed their audiences and said, we're just going to go after that niche and we're going to serve them what they want. And as a result, information and news has actually just become, in my view, largely a product that's more akin in many ways to entertainment, particularly when you see opinion. Firstly, media organisations just don't have the money that they used to have. So they don't have a lot of money to invest in investigation. They don't have a lot of money to invest in thoughtful, deep pieces or in finding experts. Because back in my day, the op-ed page was run by a very, you know, often very exhausted editor who had really good contacts in different industries. And when a story was flaring in health or education or something else, they would go out, their job was to go and find from their contacts an expert in that area to write about an opinion about what was actually happening. These days, you've got to do it so quickly and mm. so cheaply that the best thing is to get an opinion writer who'll, who'll spit out opinion on demand. And it's all through. It's not just, as you said, on one page anymore. It's on the front page. It's everywhere. Mm. It's cheap and easy. And then the final part of it is that, as I said earlier, social media has made it very clear that if you want to get shared, if you want to have real engagement with audience, if you want to drive clicks and all those sorts of things, it's better to have really polarised emotions, usually around anger, outrage, fear, because those things drive, you know, people get in this loop of dopamine, happy, cortisol, anxious. My book goes into some of that science. And what that does is we're all... I find we're all constantly more anxious, partly because the news that we're engaging with, it's very hard to find news that isn't like that now. That's right. And it's it's all divisive. Do you know, I was thinking when I went to bed last night, I was thinking, you know, I, I can't even see a solution to this. And I'm thinking largely about politics in the US election. And I think whatever direction, whether he wins, there's going to be civil unrest. And whether he loses, there's going to be civil unrest. One of the reasons why I'm interested in US politics is not just because I'm connected with the US in, in some way. I have friends there. But it's also because it has global ramifications. I mean, I think this is a really important important time. But I also think, is there a solution or is it that all the left now move to one side of the country and all the right yeah. move to the other side of the country because the twain ain't never going to meet? It's just not Yeah, and you're right. And one of the real problems with that that's enabled someone like a Donald Trump not only to rise to power but in, then to stay in power and create, as you just said, this idea that there's going to be more unrest because he's seeding the ground for it, that whatever the result of the election is, mm. you know, it's going to be contested. As you said, there are really big, serious global ramifications. If the US, and I, I did a, a double degree in, in politics and American politics was one of the majors in that. I'm sorry, a double major in, in politics. I love it, really mm. love it. And the American founding fathers, the um, Federalist Papers and all that sort of um, material really still engages me. And what we're seeing is the decline of a superpower from the inside, probably being fueled along by some foreign actors who are also encouraging that sort of dissonance online. But we're seeing that decline and what that actually means if they all took a big step back is that you will see, you're already seeing the rise of China. China is not behaving in a way that, you know, fills anyone full of, you know, optimism about what that means for the world. 
Now, in you know, 10 or 20 years ago, you would be getting, yes, you'd be getting the noise, a bit of noise and hysteria around that, but what you would also be getting is that sort of leavening hand that says this is really serious. These are the things that are at stake. That These are the, the values that we stand for. These are the institutions that we believe in. And so that stuff is still being said, but it is drowned out by the next tweet, the hysteria, just the constant soap opera of what's going on. And as, as you've acknowledged as well, yes, that happens in right-wing media, but you're seeing it in the way the your other media outlets get sucked into it. Right, why talk about foreign policy when you can talk about the stupid thing that Donald Trump said last? Now, of course, it's very difficult. I mean, mm. journos, you know, political journos will say, but if we don't report it, but you know what I also think is happening? There's no strategic direction anywhere. Yes. I think globally, like if we had, let's say, you know, Barack Obama was still the president and we had Angela Merkel and we had even Theresa May over in the UK, we might have had a more considered uh, strategic approach to the pandemic. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and again, what I, I, I've talked about this a couple of times in interviews about this book, because I, by the way, I went into, I was poached around 2013, 14, after I'd freelanced for a while, I was poached into uh, political communications consultancy work and into corporate communications consultancy work for a while. And I must say, you know, the pay is great. I still love writing. I love journalism. So, um, you know, I went through a stage of just wishing I could, you know, will myself to just do this work, but it, it just does it doesn't come naturally to seekers of truth and, you know, and, and writers who just want to write what they see rather than spin and things like that. And why does that matter? Because what I, I worked with CEOs and politicians and campaigns where you literally were preparing them with talking points for the next, you know, this interview that will then be on social media that will, will then be on the next news bulletin and all that sort of thing. And what that means is it's very easy to get sucked into this very quick vortex but I was also at the same time observing that in that vortex, which also we all, ex- if we're working in offices, experience through things like email, constant email, constant you know, office chat, constant meetings, no strategic thought gets done, which goes back to your question, and no very little creative work can get done because we know this stuff requires space, time for thinking, time for imagining, nobody from the Prime Minister or the President down is allowing themselves time to do that. And yet, here's the question. I did what, somebody asked me, how are you going with turning down the noise in your own life? Do you, and I said, well, I'm not at all pure. It's a, it's a, a battle every day. And because I'm a political junkie, during elections or during big news events breaking, Twitter goes back on my phone. I periodically take it off and then it'll go back on. And when COVID was really breaking hard, sort of March, April, where we were starting to think what's going to happen in Australia, I put Twitterbatic on and I noticed what I was doing, like many other people, was I was watching it obsessively. My angst levels were going through the roof. I was becoming really ang- anxious, which is a real tell for me. I feel that pit, pit of the stomach, twitchy feeling. Then I thought, what the hell was I looking for? You know, you're watching politicians, we see this now with the Dan Andrews um, Canberra sort of 
niggling back and forth, sort of frankly, bitchiness and things like that, point scoring. I'll just tell, because we've got some international listeners, um, Dan Andrews is the Premier of Victoria, who at the moment are suffering a terrible spike um, in COVID. Mm. Um, and there's anyway. the toing and froing about him locking down his state and the, the Canberra, the federal politicians that wanting it to be back open. Now, my point is, though, if you stand back from that, you realise none of this crisis is going to be solved in the next hour by what one person says to another on Twitter, you're not going to see the crisis be solved in any way by a politician, any, you know, because really science is going to fix this. And science is taking place, bless its heart, of social media in laboratories. And unfortunately, it's a slower process. But that's how great innovation and great breakthroughs are made. And that should be telling us something, Cheryl. Mm. That constant back and forth of opinion, we get stuck in that dopamine loop, stuff in the book about that, that it is a very deliberate thing that Silicon Valley has worked out. They have a, what I refer to as the nursery that comes out of the Stanford business, uh, not business school, the Stanford lab, where they get these young youngsters, you know, usually smart white, young, white men, maybe not all white, but they poach them out of their because they're experts in behavioural change and how to weaponise that through social media platforms. And now you're getting this phalanx of sort of people who've left Facebook, Google, you know, Twitter, wherever, who are telling the world what we have done is destroying the social fabric. That is a Facebook executive who said that. We don't know where it will end. God knows what it's doing to our children. They're all quotes that stand out. So they've admitted that they are they very deliberately, Tristan Harris, who left Google and founded a movement called Time Well Spent, which has since become the Centre for Responsible Technology. He calls it the rush to the bottom, the race to the bottom of the brain stem. Why? Because that's what they do. They, he, he also refers to mobile devices as the, as the slot machine in your pocket, the poking machine in your pocket. He talks about that with a very great skill base. You know, he has seen the neuroscience that lights up our lizard brain. And what we do when we engage with a social media feed or a news feed is lighting up the same circuitry in our brain that is lit up when, you know, somebody who is addicted to poker machines is feeding coins in. And yet they're, they're the devices we give our kids that we walk around with. And we give but, it to them at such an early age, don't yeah. we? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Turning down the noise. 
like, say for somebody like me, can you give me three tips that I can walk away with that, you know, just little changes that we can make in our everyday life? It's a really important question, partly because when I went into this, I'm where where so many of us encouraged to be perfectionists or that, you know, you've got, if you're going to do something, if you're going to run, it's not good enough to run. You've got to aim to run a half marathon or a marathon. If you're going to go to the gym, you can't just go this many times. You have to go every day and crush it or something. And it's, I found That's myself not me. Doing, yeah. Well, I found myself though, Cheryl, doing the same thing yeah. with when I first started to explore silence and quiet practices because as a journalist I was really committed to whatever I do, I want to make sure that the science is there to say what's unhealthy with noise but also what's healthy with practices like meditation, walking in nature, things like that. And for a little while I went through this phase of thinking, oh, I, I need to, we need to do the complete sea change. We need to just get out of the city. We need to, I need to meditate two hours a day, you know, all of those things. And I thought, you know, not only am I realistically not going to be able to do that, I'm part of a family here. I'm not my own, I'm just one person. I have two children at a high school. I've got a partner who's got a career. But I thought it doesn't help readers because realistically, most of us can't do that. So I incorporated a, a chapter where of those practical tips you mentioned with what I call slivers of silence, slices of silence and slabs, the big fat pieces of silence that you may only get to do every couple of years. So I did a 10-day silent retreat. It changed my life. It really did. But it changed my life in ways that now I walk around and I'm better at seeing, picking when my thoughts are getting out of control, when I'm getting manic about news or something like that. But I realised that there's got to be things we do during the day. So three tips would be, and it really depends on the type of person you are, but one of the things is very deliberately going into nature, finding your patch of nature and taking out the earphones, taking out the AirPods and just being. If you can do that, and I've said that I know a lot of women feel a bit insecure being in you know, bushwalking by themselves or things like that, I have a dog and it is the best meditative practice to watch a Labrador running ahead on the trail because they are immediately present Mm -hmm. and you're smiling me talking about it and that's releasing the, the happy chemicals. But what that shows you if you can't access silence, I watch him and I'm like, oh, there he is looking at, you know, sniffing that bush. There he is joyful about this stick he's found. There he is looking at that bush turkey with his, you know, ears up. And you realise they, they show you how to be present. Nothing is more joyful than the moment that they're in engaging with their senses in that environment. So I mean that very genuinely. Slice, little tiny slivers of silence. One of the ones that I did recently because I went in-house on a job that I was, I was working on as a comms consultant and my anxiety again went through the roof and I realised hang on, I've written about this. <laughs> I really, it was a, it was a moment of humility. Yeah, somebody wrote about that. Oh, that would be me. And one of the things I love is treat your car like the pod of silence. When you get in the car to do your commute, deliberately turn everything off. Don't return calls. Turn your phone off. You should probably shouldn't be on the phone even hands-free anyway. It's safer not to be. Don't listen to music for a little while. Don't listen to, you know, I love podcasts. Don't do it. Just even if it's just for 10 minutes of that commute, I don't, you know, depending on your commute, just allow yourself this little world of silence. And it'll feel weird at first, 
but you'll actually feel your brain flush out. I find it's rejuvenating. Similarly, when you get, I do a thing like a car park. I do little car park confessions now occasionally on my social media. But what I do is when I park the car, I was parking at work, sit there again and just before you go into the to-do list of what I have to do at work today, just sit there. And if you have to sit there and go, I'm in a car park, I see a tree. I'm in a car park, I see a fence. Just allow yourself again to just observe because what that's allowing your brain to do again, there's great neuroscience to show this, is put a full stop on one task. So you're not endlessly replaying. You know, some of these like Stanford research and others, it's, yeah, Stanford research shows that we, we don't multitask. So what you do is if you rush from one task to another, it's like keeping multiple tabs open in your browser, which of course we know drains energy from our computers. It's draining energy from our brain. And our brain is actually trying to go back and finish those tasks you know, whatever it is. Oh, I was meant to, you know, I don't know, order my kid's school uniform or I was meant to send that email or I was meant to do whatever. We need to allow our brains the time to move from one task to the next. I think I've got enough tips there. I'm going to do, no, I have a dog. That's why I was Mm. smiling when you were talking about yours. (laughs) And I do walk um, him twice a day, but I do have my, I listen to podcasts. So I'm going to take your advice and not do that. Um, Cheryl, I do say it's a bit like finding silence or implementing quiet practices. It, it is a bit like, it is a bit like exercise. So your brain won't necessarily like it if you're changing habit because your brain likes that yeah. distraction loop. Yeah. And even the good things, like there's lots of junk stuff we've talked about, but even the good things like a good pod- podcast, I tell people, one of my tips is go on a social, go on a media diet. And what I mean by that is review what you're putting into your brain because a lot of it will be the noisy junk. And then the stuff that you love, this podcast, for example, recognise that you do love that, but treat that as something that is quality rather than, and don't let it get messed up and overwhelmed by all the junk. Yeah, um, and, and, and don't let it get into the blur of life, really. Yeah. Is, yeah. It, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right, because I am, as journalists are, I, I used to be, you know, right, check your, your phone for email, put radio, put the ABC on when you're getting ready. And now sometimes, even just before this podcast, I actually went to put another podcast on while I was putting my makeup on and getting ready for the day. And I was like, you know what? Just turn it off. Just mm. be present. Kids are at school. You're going to have some silence. And just mentally, just let yourself settle into what am I doing here and what's the day going to hold? Christine Jackman, wonderful. I love, love, loved our conversation. Thank you so much. Um, I loved it too. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.